we continue with the opinion of the court in Health and Hospital Corporation of Marion County v. Televsky. Part 3 The FNHRA can create Section 1983 Enforceable Rights, but do the two FNHRA provisions at issue in this case actually do so? In that respect, our precedent sets a demanding bar. Statutory provisions must unambiguously confer individual federal rights. For the reasons explained below, we conclude that the bar has been cleared with respect to the presently contested provisions, and while the FNHRA itself might nevertheless evince Congress's intent to preclude the use of Section 1983 to enforce these particular rights, we hold further that it does not. Section A. The FNHRA provisions at issue in this case, like the rest of the Act, stem from a long-standing national commitment to provide safe and dignified care for the elderly. Since as early as the Social Security Act of 1935, federal law has aimed in myriad ways to promote nursing homes that provide quality services. Yet concerns about the poor condition of such facilities persisted even after Congress enacted the 1965 Medicare and Medicaid Acts, partly due to widespread noncompliance with existing federal and state laws. Thus, in 1987, Congress passed, and President Ronald Reagan signed, the FNHRA, affecting a seismic shift in nursing home quality standards. The FNHRA is largely composed of a litany of statutory requirements that Congress laid out for Medicaid participant states and nursing facilities. Those include requirements relating to residents' rights, two of which Talevsky's complaint invoked. The first requires nursing facilities to protect and promote residents' right to be free from any physical or chemical restraints imposed for purposes of discipline or convenience and not required to treat the residents' medical symptoms. See Section 1396RC1A2, referred to herein as the Unnecessary Restraint Provision. The second appears in a subparagraph concerning transfer and discharge rights, Section 1396RC2A, and tells nursing facilities that they must not transfer or discharge a resident unless certain enumerated preconditions, including advance notice of such transfer or discharge, are met. See Sections 1396RC2A through B, referred to herein as the pre-discharge notice provision. As for enforcement, like other aspects of Medicaid, the FNHRA anticipates cooperative federalism, i.e. federal and state actors working together to carry out the statute's aims. Thus, qualifying state Medicaid plans which are approved by the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, or HHS Secretary, must include provisions that relate to nursing facilities and must require any nursing facility receiving payments under the plan 
to satisfy certain FNHRA mandates. The HHS Secretary must also assure that approved state plans and the enforcement of plan requirements are inter alia adequate to protect the health, safety, welfare, and rights of nursing home residents. The FNHRA also establishes a detailed administrative scheme for government inspections of nursing facilities. Surveys, in the statute's parlance, must be conducted to detect nursing homes that are falling short of the FNHRA's minimum standards, and state and federal officials must periodically file certifications based on these surveys regarding nursing home compliance. In addition, the statute authorizes government actors to sanction and correct non-compliant facilities, or if appropriate, exclude them from the Medicaid program entirely. Section B. 1. Although federal statutes have the potential to create Section 1983 enforceable rights, they do not do so as a matter of course. For spending clause legislation in particular, we have recognized that the typical remedy for state non-compliance with federally imposed conditions is not a private cause of action for non-compliance, but rather action by the federal government to terminate funds to the state. The parties here thus dispute whether this is the atypical case, that is, whether the unnecessary restraint and pre-discharge notice provisions of the FNHRA unambiguously confer individual rights, making those rights presumptively enforceable under Section 1983. Gonzaga sets forth our established method for ascertaining unambiguous conferral. Courts must employ traditional tools of statutory construction to assess whether Congress has unambiguously conferred individual rights upon a class of beneficiaries to which the plaintiff belongs. Notably, it must be determined that Congress intended to create a federal right for the identified class, not merely that the plaintiffs fall within the general zone of interest that the statute is intended to protect. This paradigm respects Congress's primacy in this arena and thus vindicates the separation of powers. We have held that the Gonzaga test is satisfied where the provision in question is phrased in terms of the persons benefited and contains rights-creating, individual-centric language, with an unmistakable focus on the benefited class. Conversely, we have rejected Section 1983 Enforceability, where the statutory provision contained no rights-creating language had an aggregate, not individual, focus, and served primarily to direct the federal government's distribution of public funds. If a statutory provision surmounts this significant hurdle, it secures Section 1983 enforceable rights, consistent with Section 1983's text. And because Section 1983 generally supplies a remedy for the vindication of rights secured by federal statutes, 
rights so secured are deemed presumptively enforceable under Section 1983. 2. The unnecessary restraint and pre-discharge notice provisions meet this test. To start, we note that both reside in 42 U.S.C. Section 1396 R.C., which expressly concerns requirements relating to residents' rights. This framing is indicative of an individual rights-creating focus. Examined further, the text of the unnecessary restraint and pre-discharge notice provisions unambiguously confers rights upon the residents of nursing home facilities. The unnecessary restraint provision requires nursing homes to protect and promote the right to be free from any physical or chemical restraints imposed for purposes of discipline or convenience and not required to treat the resident's medical symptoms. The provision's enumerated exceptions further sustain the focus on individual residents. For example, nursing homes may use restraints to ensure the physical safety of the resident or other residents, but only upon the written order of a physician that specifies the duration and circumstances under which the restraints are to be used, absent emergency circumstances specified by the HHS secretary. The pre-discharge notice provision is more of the same. Nestled in a paragraph concerning transfer and discharge rights, that provision tells nursing facilities that they must not transfer or discharge a resident unless certain preconditions are met, including advance notice of the transfer or discharge to the resident and his or her family. And again, the statute's caveats remain focused on individual residents. A nursing home may transfer or discharge such an individual if, among other things, the transfer is necessary to meet the resident's welfare or if the resident's health has improved so much that the facility is no longer necessary, or if the safety or health of other individuals would be endangered. The exceptions to the advance notice requirement, too, turn inter alia on the resident's health, the resident's urgent medical needs, or the existence of threats to the safety or health of other individuals in the nursing home. To be sure, these two provisions also establish who it is that must respect and honor these statutory rights, namely the Medicaid participant nursing homes in which these residents reside. But that is not a material diversion from the necessary focus on the nursing home residents, contrary to HHC's representations. Indeed, it would be strange to hold that a statutory provision fails to secure rights simply because it considers, alongside the rights-bearers, the actors that might threaten those rights, and we have never so held. The unnecessary restraint and pre-discharge notice provisions thus stand in stark contrast to the statutory provisions that failed Gonzaga's test in Gonzaga itself. Those provisions lacked rights-creating language, primarily directed the federal government's distribution of public funds, and had an aggregate, 
not individual, focus. The opposite is true here. The unnecessary restraint and pre-discharge notice provisions use clear rights-creating language, speak in terms of the persons benefited, and have an unmistakable focus on the benefited class. Thus, they satisfy Gonzaga's stringent standard, and the rights they recognize are presumptively enforceable under Section 1983. Section C. Even if a statutory provision unambiguously secures rights, a defendant may defeat the presumption by demonstrating that Congress did not intend that Section 1983 be available to enforce those rights. For evidence of such intent, we have looked to the statute creating the right. A statute could, of course, expressly forbid Section 1983's use. Absent such a sign, a defendant must show that Congress issued the same command implicitly by creating a comprehensive enforcement scheme that is incompatible with the individual enforcement under Section 1983. Only the latter path is at issue here. 1. Our precedent outlines what HHC must show to traverse the implicit preclusion path. The crucial consideration is whether Congress intended a statute's remedial scheme to be the exclusive avenue through which a plaintiff may assert his claims. Our precedents make clear that the sine qua non of a finding that Congress implicitly intended to preclude a private right of action under Section 1983 is incompatible between enforcement under Section 1983 and the enforcement scheme that Congress has enacted. We have used many terms and concepts to describe the necessary discordance between Section 1983 and a rights-conferring statute's remedial scheme. Incompatible, inconsistent, and thwart are examples. In all events, the question is whether the design of the enforcement scheme in the rights-conferring statute is inconsistent with enforcement under Section 1983, such that a court must infer that Congress did not intend to make available the Section 1983 remedy for these newly created rights. Put another way, the inquiry boils down to what Congress intended, as divined from text and context. The application of the traditional tools of statutory construction to a statute's remedial scheme may reveal no incompatibility between the enforcement scheme that Congress crafted in the rights-conferring statute and enforcement under Section 1983, or it may uncover sufficient incompatibility to make manifest Congress's intent to preclude Section 1983 actions. 2. We discern no incompatibility between the FNHRA's remedial scheme and Section 1983 enforcement of the rights that the unnecessary restraint and pre-discharge notice provisions unambiguously secure. As explained in Part 3a, 
The FNHRA details administrative processes concerning inspection of covered nursing facilities and accountability for non-compliant facilities, but the statute lacks any indicia of congressional intent to preclude Section 1983 enforcement, such as an express private judicial right of action or any other provision that might signify that intent nor has HHC otherwise demonstrated that enforcement via Section 1983 would thwart the operation of the administrative remedial scheme in any respect. HHC's argument that we need look no further than the detail of the FNHRA's enforcement mechanisms to find conclusive evidence of implicit preclusion is unpersuasive. Implicit preclusion is shown by a comprehensive enforcement scheme that is incompatible with individual enforcement under Section 1983. HHC's single-minded focus on comprehensiveness mistakes the shadow for the substance, and it disregards the import of the FNHRA provision's unambiguous conferral of rights. The attendant presumption is that Section 1983 can play its textually prescribed role as a vehicle for enforcing those rights, even alongside a detailed enforcement regime that also protects those interests, so long as Section 1983 enforcement is not incompatible with Congress's handiwork. To be clear, a defendant can discharge its burden of showing that the presumption is rebutted by pointing to a comprehensive scheme. But when a particular comprehensive remedial scheme discharges the defendant's burden, it does so because the application of ordinary interpretive tools reveals incompatibility, i.e. it demonstrates that Congress intended that statute's remedial scheme to be the exclusive avenue through which a plaintiff may assert his claims. Nothing in the FNHRA indicates the incompatibility evinced in our three prior cases finding implicit preclusion. Rancho Palos Verdes, Smith, and Sea Clamors concerned statutes with self-contained enforcement schemes that included statute-specific rights of action. Each such statute required plaintiffs to comply with particular procedures and or to exhaust particular administrative remedies under the statute's enforcement scheme before suing under its dedicated right of action. And each statute-specific right of action offered fewer benefits than those available under Section 1983. Thus, in all three cases, Section 1983's operation would have thwarted Congress's scheme coming and going. It would have circumvented the statute's pre-suit procedures and would have also given plaintiffs access to tangible benefits as remedies that were unavailable under the statutes. Those comprehensive enforcement schemes were incompatible with individual enforcement under Section 1983. HHC has identified no equivalent sign in the FNHRA, nor has Justice Alito. In focusing on what the FNHRA contains, they ignore what it lacks, a private judicial right of action, a private federal administrative remedy, or any careful congressional tailoring.
HHC seems to think it enough to show that Congress was not slipshod in crafting the remedial scheme. But in a word where the FNHRA's remedial scheme could complement, not supplant, Section 1983, HHC must demonstrate more than that. One last rebuttal argument warrants addressing. The United States says that because private entities owned most nursing homes when the FNHRA was enacted in 1987, as they do now, the FNHRA is a rare bird for implicit preclusion purposes. In the United States' view, because Congress knew that most nursing homes could not be subject to suit under Section 1983 anyway, the FNHRA's remedial scheme necessarily reflects Congress's judgment that these administrative enforcement mechanisms appropriately protect the rights the statute confers. This argument is unavailing. The implicit preclusion inquiry looks to the statute creating the right and any comprehensive enforcement scheme Congress has created in the statute that is incompatible with individual enforcement under Section 1983. It does not invite speculation about ostensible marketplace realities that appear nowhere in the statute's text or relevant context. The relevant FNHRA provisions speak in neutral terms that do not distinguish between private and public nursing homes. And regardless, the question remains whether something in the FNHRA has foreclosed Section 1983's general availability as a remedy for the vindication of rights secured by federal statutes. We see no such sign, much less a license for us to construct and impute congressional intent that the FNHRA does not embody. The difficulty for HHC and the United States is that implicit preclusion in this context requires something in the statute that shows that permitting Section 1983 to operate would thwart Congress's intent in crafting the FNHRA. We see nothing in the FNHRA that even hints at Congress's intent in this regard. If anything, the language of the Act confirms otherwise, for it plainly states that the remedies provided under its enforcement process subsection are in addition to those otherwise available under state or federal law and shall not be construed as limiting such other remedies. We will not rewrite Section 1396RH8 in lieu of rewriting Section 1983. At oral argument, HHC's counsel remarked that the right question is what rights are secured by law within the meaning of Section 1983. That is an accurate statement of the key issue in this case. Section 1983 itself provides the answer. By its terms, Section 1983 is available to enforce every right that Congress validly and unambiguously creates. We will not impose a categorical font of power condition that the Reconstruction Congress did not. And here, 
the test that our precedents establish leads inexorably to the conclusion that the FNHRA secures the particular rights that Talevsky invokes, without otherwise signaling that enforcement of those rights via Section 1983 is precluded as incompatible with the FNHRA's remedial scheme. Accordingly, we affirm the judgment of the Court of Appeals. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of this opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.